At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, the CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. This is a podcast for the 99% of people who get healthcare in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and caregivers, executives, advocates who are fed up with the status quo. We have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations across America that are putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Today, we have a very special treat. And again, the old joke is I say that every single time that we have a podcast and we have a new guest coming on. But what I love doing is not just talking about companies who are doing amazing things and entrepreneurs who are doing incredible things, um, trying to bring care to really the masses and bring costs down, bring accessibility up. But when we get to actually talk to a physician who is doing this and living this and succeeding in doing it and caring for the local community, I get really excited. I hope you get excited too. So please welcome Dr. James Hawks, an internist and owner at the Hawks Clinic in beautiful Las Vegas. Uh, Dr. Hawks, thanks for joining us. And um, I got to spend a second saying thank you because you reached out to us. You, you said, hey, Chris, I've been a longtime listener here. I think I have an incredible story to tell from my standpoint. And so you wrote into us and we said, yep. We love it. Let's get you on the show. Let's get something organized. So first of all, thank you for reaching out to us. We absolutely love it when people do that. Yes. Thank you for having me. Now, you have an incredible story. You've been up and practicing, relatively young physician. And so we love to see this. I will say independent practice and, and owning your own business is not something for older physicians where they have a big nest egg built up. I mean, you're doing it and you're showing that, hey, this is very, very successful. And so kudos to you. And we're going to dive a little bit into that. But what I wanted to start to show off is talking about some of those barriers to starting up practices that you encountered and really what a lot of the physicians are encountering right there. And I think we both agree that financial barriers are really the number one issue for a lot of physicians looking to create a direct primary care clinic such as yourself. So wanted to pick your brain on that. What, what has your experience been and, and how your colleagues viewed this really transformation of your practice? Yeah, it's, it's always been a growth process and I'm in the middle of it still. But I finished residency in 2012 and I took a job for a rural hospital. And actually the year that I made the most money since I've graduated from 2012 was my first year out of residency. And that's just because I was used to working a lot. And uh, even though I was making a lot of money at the time, I was living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And all the money that was coming in was going out. And it was in student loans. It was in a mortgage. It was in getting married. It was in all these events that happen when young doctors finish residency, you know. Quick question there. Do you feel like when you're going through residency that you have a lot of outside sources, people saying like, hey, you need to come in and now's the time to buy a new house. Now's the time to buy the new car. Now's the time that you're a doctor. So I'm going to start trying yes. to sell you a bunch of stuff. Did you have a lot of that? Yes. 
And when I got out, it was like, hey, we'll be your financial planners. Hey, buy our life insurance. Hey, make sure you get all of these. And even though I was insured up for everything, we didn't use it, but we were paying a lot for a lot of those things. Yeah. And you just kind of piqued my interest because we hear this a lot. And, you know, there's very little business education that happens in residency or medical schools. But yet they allow these groups in who were like, oh, we're just a doctor's only group. But if you compare that to what other people are paying for financial advice and and, and we're like, what in the world? How does this make sense? So I guess we can go go down kind of the rabbit hole here. What were the messages for a lot of these people and how do they even get access to a lot of these, these residency programs in the first place? They, I think, start marketing to residency programs and there is a big pay increase when you finish residency and then your first year of working. Right. And so I turned them down and just got the most basic of all the insurances that I needed. And even then, I still think it was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you look um, back and be like, maybe I didn't actually need that insurance. <laughs> yeah. And um, with all of the outside voices telling us, spend your money here, spend your money here, you need a bigger house. When I bought a house after residency, even the, the bank that gave us our mortgage was like, is this really all you want? You know, you're a doctor, you can afford more. And <laughs> I said, no, this is, the, this is it. Okay. So sorry to take us down that little side path there. So what happens next? You, yeah. you, get out of, you got a residency, you're starting to rack up the bills, keep your head above water, trying to... Yeah. So living paycheck to paycheck, I would be literally waiting for the money to come into the bank account. And uh, it was stressful because of all of the, the bills. And then the end of my first year, I got all of my summary, my total income and all the interest that I had paid and the interest on my student loans and the interest on the mortgage and all these things. And I added it up and I said, before medical school, I used to live on less money than that. <laughs> Now I'm paying more than that just in interest. And so it got my wheels turning about where's the money going. Uh-huh. And then I, uh, I heard on the radio, maybe a lot of people have heard of Dave Ramsey, mm-hmm. um, but I bought a book that he had written called Smart Money, Smart Kids. And then I read it and listened to their podcasts and do all those kind of things. And it really pushed me into eliminating and eliminating and eliminating debt one by one. First, the credit cards, and then the cars, and then really working on the student loans. And I finished in 2012, and our student loans were paid off in 2018. Wow. So it took six years to uh, pay off that part. And then, wow. um, yeah, just as time goes by, I opened my uh, DPC practice in 2017. So I was working as a hospitalist just working for large hospital group from 2012 to 2017. So yeah, it's an inspiring story there because I think a lot of people with physicians, especially who might have a couple hundred thousand dollars in in just student loan debt saying, wow, six years, you're able to do that. Any advice for somebody who's sitting there saying, wow, I really need to get out from this debt. Like what kind of financial discipline did you have to implement into really your personal life so that it would open up this new chapter in your business life? Well, when we got married, my wife had no debt. And she understood money better than me. So when I was showing her, like, look how much money we made, but look how much is gone, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And we got on the same page with getting out of debt. And so um, even to this day, she's more of a a better organizer and spends less than I do. (laughs) But it's very (laughs) nice to have that kind of coach and that support right there. So 
There you go. It's perfect. I uh, want to fast forward. So I want to talk about your practice there. Again, I think, I think that's an amazing example for people to learn from. But we started this episode by talking about the financials, you know, and, and really the financial literacy that is needed or that is lacking, you know, from a lot of brand new minted MDs, DOs and medical professionals out there. When you decided to learn or decided you needed to break or that's not even the right word to use it. When you, when you needed to change out of the hospital regime, what'd you do? What was your thought process? So there was actually an event that kicked me into it that made me a little bit mad. <laughs> and it was, I, love um, that. Yeah. <laughs> I was in Costco and uh, I ran into a senior couple who I had admitted the husband in the hospital and he was in respiratory failure in the ER. We got him up to the medical floor. One or two days later, he still wasn't doing better. We put him on a ventilator, went to the ICU. I rounded on him every day for, I think, 14 or 16 days or so. And um, he came off the ventilator after a few days, went back to the medical floor, started working with physical therapy to walk again. Anyways, he was discharged and survived. And uh, I ran into them. Every day when they were in the hospital, I would have family meetings with them and explain to them, well, this is what the numbers are. These are the medicines we're changing. This is why we're doing this. And then the kids from California and from New York and everywhere, just on the phone. And it was a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that I had a good relationship with them. And in my mind, I had saved their dad, you know, yeah. and I run into them in Costco and the wife just looks at me like she's insulted to see me. And I said, hi, how are you? It's so nice to see you up walking around to see you vertical. And uh, anyways, she just said, we got your hospital bills. And she said, just in your name, it's about $26,000. And that's not even counting the hospital bill. That's just the doctor bill. And it, your name's on it. Wow. So I hope you're enjoying your money. And they left like I was scum. <laughs> like a leper. Yeah, get away from me. And so I went home and I did the math. And I said, okay. If 26,000 is billed in my name, let's say it's 16 days. So I took my salary, divided the number of weeks I work, divided the number of days, divided the number of patients I see. And I came out with about $45 per patient interaction. Every day that I rounded on them, I, I made about $45. Wow. Pause right there, Doc. So I just quick back the napkin math because this story is incredible. And I, there's a lot of people out there nodding their heads like, yeah, oh yeah, we've had these interactions before. And the patients are looking at you like, yeah, you might've you know, saved us, maybe we pulled out of it, but you just put us into bankruptcy. So what'd you really do for us, right? So if he's in there, how long did you say that this patient was in the hospital, that you were seeing him every day? Which again, is, is probably very, very rare from the stories that we've been told that you actually taking time to talk to family members and really go what you thought was the extra mile. I mean, that's rare in and of itself. Yeah. So how long was he in there? About 16 days. 16 days, 45 bucks a day. Goodness gracious. You're coming out less than a thousand dollars back to your pocket, but yet they are getting charged $26,000. All right. Yes. So that's what when the light bulb went off. And I thought, you know, what if they work at the elementary school where my kids are going to go? What if they are trying to sell me a car? What if they are, you know, we live in the same community. Right. And I don't want that kind of relationship with patients. It wasn't that long ago when doctors were really what we call a pedestal in the local community. 
And now you're saying, hey, this is this is really the opposite. I'm I'm fearful almost to go out into my community because I don't feel like I'm doing right by these people that are my neighbors, my friends, my teachers, people working for me. I mean, that's a hell of a message, Doc. Yeah. That's jarring. It really, really is. So I started just looking up. Is there any models where patients pay doctors directly? <laughs> I just started looking up on the internet. You know what the number one question we get when we, when we talk to a doctor and they ask, I see you know, somebody and, and they say, hey, Chris, what do you do for a living? And I talk about, hey, we are a uh, community of, of direct pay physicians you know, nationwide and we help them start up and, and practice. The number one question we get is, well, isn't it illegal not to take insurance? That's the number one question. That kind of goes along with here where uh-huh. you started your research. Yeah. So you started looking up different types of models, like how do I cut all this stuff out? Yep. What did you find? So I found VPC and I found the Free Market Medical Association and I found uh, that kind of group. Mm-hmm. And um, with time, I tried to I tried to go part time. And that was a conflict of interest for the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they said, you can't go part time. You're a young physician. What are you going to do? You're going to start a practice and compete with us. And so they kind of gave me an ultimatum that was like, you work for us or you you don't work in this town. <laughs> and uh, it was a big change. And I eventually moved from that rural area into Las Vegas and took a part-time hospitalist job. And I started saving money to start my DPC. And when I had about $20,000 in the bank, I just started driving around my neighborhood looking for commercial spaces that were for lease. Mm-hmm. I found one that I liked and I got into the contract for leasing the commercial space. That's fantastic. A lot of questions come from this. And you know, anybody who's listening to this show knows that I go way off script. There is no script, but I, I go off I'll go path, path a lot. When you left that hospital, the previous one, you know, the rural one, they give you ultimatum. Did you have any inclination of like, I feel like I need to talk to an attorney about this because somebody coming out and saying, mm, you're a doctor, you know, you're not going to be an accountant that can move from different businesses, that type of thing, but you're a physician, you, you're, you're trained to save lives. And then a hospital saying, well, either you're going to work here or you're not going to be a physician at all. So the, the people making the contracts were attorneys. And yeah. I didn't even think of looking for my own attorney. And after I, I got out of it, I heard of non-competes are really not enforceable or yeah. you can exclude that section from your contract. But I was just three years out of residency at the time. And I was just an employee, basically. And I, it- I didn't even look for any other options. It's something we hear a ton of, kind of a public service announcement here. There is a lot of legislation happening in states all over the country right now. Um, Indiana, Texas, Florida are the ones that you know, we're, we're trying to work on that are introducing legislation to basically eliminate physician non-compete agreements uh, because they are abusive. I mean, it's, there's no other way to, to talk about that. It's not like you're exactly going to go be a motorcycle mechanic somewhere else, you know, and earn a living. Like you're a doctor. It's, yeah. you have lives to save. You have people to treat. And, you know, for them to be able to do that, like it really calls into question their morals, their, their goals, their motivations. And I think it puts patient care really at a crossroads too, because the yeah. worst thing they can do is switch physicians who have no idea about them and you have their entire history, right? You know, their family. So yeah, always want to throw that out there. So anybody interested in, in non-compete legislation, talk to your, talk to your legislators, you know, talk to us. We'll, we'll fill you in on what's going on here. So <laughs> I, I had to ask that question, Doc, and I had a feeling that was going to be the answer. And we see that all the time. And to follow up with that, so when you moved to Vegas and got a part-time job at a hospital, did you, how did you treat that agreement and that employment contract that was different than with your previous job? 
So basically, it was just everything cut in half, half the number of shifts, half the salary. Mm-hmm. And then you have the option to take extra shifts and work those extra shifts. Did you put anything about there of like, hey, when I leave, it's on my own terms, like I'm going to go do this practice type of thing? No, I wasn't ready to start the practice yet. And um, when I did make the lease and I was still working at a hospital in Vegas, it it was hard because I would see patients coming back and I would say, well, returning COPD patients. And and I would say, well, what happened with your primary care? Were you able to get in? And they said, I called, but I wouldn't be able to get in for three or four months. And so they said, go to the ER. And here I am for admission again, you know, and I'm taking care of them in the hospital. So yeah. When I started my DPC, some of the case managers in the hospital found out. Eventually, the hospital administration found out and they gave me an ultimatum as well that said, we offer, our hospital group offers primary care, therefore you represent to compete for a service that we offer, even though your contract says only inpatient, you can't practice outpatient either. And so going through that, most people don't know the difference between inpatient and outpatient medicine. It's just practice anyways. <laughs> yeah. So I got out of that contract when it was up. I completed everything for it. And then um, it was funny because as soon as I quit being an employee there, they turned around and said, well, we have such a shortage. Would you mind coming as a low-cost stock? <laughs> it probably so, doubled your pay. Yeah. So, oh so it worked out fine because as my DPC was growing, I still had income that I could access. Good for you. Did, it, did you ever walk in that and be like, can we actually like talk about this guys about the lunacy of, of what we just went through? <laughs> I actually made appointments with the lawyers who did our contracts and they didn't show. <laughs> and they said, oh, they're out of town. They're at a meeting in Texas. Sorry. And I was there at the administration in the hospital. Like no one cares. It's fine. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But you're said, I'm, I'm one out of hundreds of doctors here. What's plus or minus one, you know? <laughs> well, the, according to them, a, a lot of potential revenue. That's why they went after you so hard, right? So you got out. That's the big thing. You got out. You started your own practice. You grew it. Give us a little bit of insight on where you were seeing the most growth from because that's, that's the biggest thing, right? There's a financial risk of doctors saying, wow, can I afford this? Like, how do I continue to pay my bills? I'm in, you know, have a lot of car loans and home loans and, and mortgages and all this kind of stuff. I don't know if I have the money to be able to start this. And if they do, the next one is, well, shoot, how do I, how do I know people are going to show up? Where are my patients going to come from? Yeah. So my first patients were a lot of uninsured people that I had seen in the hospital, because I would say, you really need to get primary care and the case manager is trying to get you Medicaid approved and all this stuff. But if you have any problems, here's my card. <laughs> so you were doing and, locum tenums and saying, hey, just give me, a, give me a buzz if you got this. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. So I got a few patients that way. And then it was just word of mouth after that. People's cousins, people's neighbors, people's friends. It just grew from there. And it took 10 months for me to not have to put money into the business anymore, Mm -hmm. where I wouldn't have to work to pay the rent. There was enough money to cover all the overhead by 10 months. How many patients was that? What was your break-even number of patients? I think it was just past 100. Yeah, which I I love that one that you know that. Two, that you put that out there because there's so many doctors who look at this and say, wow, I, how do I even earn a living with 500 patients? And you're like, wow, there's, there's a yeah. complete sea change that has to happen. Just mental blocks, you know, for people yeah. to get into this. So yeah. So you, 10 months in, you hit hundred patients, take yeah. it from there. We started growing more and more with time. And uh, I ended up 
not working in the hospital at all. And I was completely out of hospital work for like two years. Mm -hmm. During that time, I was able to pay off our student loan. And uh, the last debt I had was the mortgage. So we started attacking that one, everything going into the mortgage. And then March 2020 happened and everything went into close with Mm -hmm. COVID. Our clinic slowed down a lot, but we still kept open at least half a day every day. And we actually kept growing during the beginning of the pandemic. I think the pandemic has just emphasized the need of primary care throughout the country. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It has just pushed it like, you're coughing, don't come to the clinic, go to the ER. And that's not a good way to run primary care. So it really pushed our clinic into uh, being busier. And Mm -hmm. we got another medical assistant and then we got a nurse practitioner. And so we were growing. And um, with all of the caseloads, I went to Texas, even though I had opted out of Medicare Mm -hmm. with the emergency authorization for spending funds by the states to bring in more doctors. Anyways, I was recruited by these locum companies again, and I agreed to go since we had a nurse practitioner in the clinic now. So I started taking some extra locums jobs, and then uh, all of that worked up eventually to us being 100% debt-free. And That's fantastic. that was our goal. And by the time December 2021 came, my wife and I were like, well, we really can't do it yet. And I said, let's do it. It's the end of the year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's take that money that we saved and put it in the mortgage and we'll be out of it, completely done. And so we did it in December and it's been so liberating. Like I think of my job now and I think I don't need to make that much money to live well anymore. And I can keep the money rolling in the business, help other doctors get into DPC and make this kind of healthcare model work for more people than just me. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to talk about, you know, what you just said there, but first, you know, wanted to bring that back because one thing that I think has a profound effect on you Explain a little bit about your childhood and and how medicine became that calling and not just a job. Yeah. So I grew up, my father was a diplomat. He worked for the State Department and we grew up mainly in South America. And so we we speak Spanish and we speak Portuguese. And actually, I think a lot of DPC docs get into a niche, Mm -hmm. like maybe you're a Hindu doc and you got a lot of Hindu patients or maybe a you're Korean doc and you, you get into the Korean community or... And, yeah, we, and all, we all have our tribe, right? We all have our tribe. We have our community and yeah. with a few hundred patients you know, needed, you can take really great care of people who value you. And frankly, we gravitate towards people that have a, a same, a shared set of experiences and, and appearances uh-huh. at times. So yeah, you're exactly spot on. So a good portion of our patients are South American and first or second generation immigrants and a lot of them speak English, a lot of them don't. And anyways, it was uh, medicine as a calling. I think that it first started out when uh, I was young, my mother's a nurse. And so she had always said medical things growing up and everything. But it was my grandmother who she liked to cook chickens. And uh, we lived in Chile for a while, which is where my mother's from. And uh, my grandma would get an axe and chop the chicken's head off and then bring it into the house put it in the hot water, pull all the feathers off, and then go in the kitchen with a knife or some scissors and open it and take out all of the guts. And I remember in the kitchen on the cutting board with her, (laughs) and she would say, look, this is the liver. This is what a heart looks like. 
these are lungs. <laughs> this is where the eggs come out. Wow. And uh, she incentivated, she gave me the idea to be a doctor. And then my parents just pushed it along. And when I got into college, I thought, well, I guess that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's, see, you were called to that early, right? Family bonds and very early uh, dissection lessons, I guess, uh, <laughs> is a good way to put that one too. Um, yeah. And so I appreciate you sharing that story because you know, so many times we reinforce that you know, if we treat physicians just like an assembly line and, 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 you know, kind of manufacturing and you get here and you punch the time clock, that's not what happens. Pretty much every physician I've ever met is not in it because it's a nine to five and they get to go home because that doesn't happen, right? Explain a little bit and where you are from just a lifestyle change, being a business owner, because so many times, you know, when we talk to doctors, they say, wow, I, uh, I want to be able to take care of better care of, of my patients. And number two, I would really like to see my family again. Yeah. So I love being a DPC doctor because of that. I get home every day by 530. And if I'm not home by 530, my seven-year-old daughters, they're like, why are you late? Did you forget we have dinner now? <laughs> I have weekends with them and we're making some traditions on going out on a little trip or hike or bike ride on Saturdays and cooking something, trying a new recipe on Sundays. It's a total lifestyle change. And I feel like at work, I also am practicing medicine better by spending more time listening to patients, explaining what actually diabetes is, how you can take care of it, what lifestyle changes, what the medicines are for, and being able to do that in a way that people understand that you can take the time and listen to them, you, you really establish good relationships with your patients. Christmas time, especially, start getting food and <laughs> hats yeah. and apple pies and <laughs> these nice little things because patients appreciate that somebody knows them and uh -huh. has helped them through a time of crisis or an insecurity that they're having. Somebody who's there to listen and to follow up close or who uh, talks to their young adult child about suicide or mm -hmm. all these different things, and you really become part of their family. They rely on you for like medical advice, yes, and sometimes life advice, even though that's not our place, but. <laughs> it becomes know. that, right? And that's, well, I, I feel like primary care, you know, about 30 years ago, gave up a lot of that, what you're just talking about of, you know, yeah. being a support, but emotional, mental nutritional lifestyle, you know, there's a lot of things that go into what we consider primary care. So yeah, it, it's all built on that relationship, right? And yeah. they might not have anybody else to talk to. And uh, we see older patients that might not have anybody to talk to at all. And so the use is kind of a social, just to have mm -hmm. that human interaction and connection. And that's, what's magical about it. You know, you talked about how happy you were and you're practicing better medicine. You used a term earlier, moral injury. And I absolutely love that. And in all my notes here, I've been highlighting that. Be like, oh my gosh, we have to go back to that because it drives me nuts when, you know, the medical community talks about physician burnout. I hate that word so much because my rebuttal is that if we treated any other employee, like we do our physicians and they were driving, you know, they were being driven to suicide, being driven to quit, being driven to just stress that most of us can't handle and then we just call it burnout, like it's their fault. You might be talking about criminal charges, lawsuits, it's workplace abuse, but yeah. swapping burnout in for moral injury. Tell us, expand a little bit on that and why you use that term specifically, which I absolutely love. 
you know, when I had left the system and I was just doing DPC for like two years and then the hospital and they, they said, we really need help in Texas. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not at in that now. And then they, they asked like three times and they once called me on a Sunday afternoon asking if I could go. And I said, mm-hmm. these guys are really in a bad situation over there on the front lines in Texas. <laughs> and I told my wife, if I was a doctor practicing over there, I would feel abandoned by my colleagues. You know, I would feel like they don't care. And anyways, when I got to Texas, the doctor I was taking over had been like, 18 days straight, 12 hour days, sometimes 14 or 16 to finish all the documenting, Jeez. seeing tons of patients, resolving all these crises. And when I got there, he's like, here's the list. You have my number, but don't call me. Okay. Just do whatever you want. I thought, yeah, poor guy. He has to go sleep. Unbelievable. <laughs> you know, when you get cynical and upset and you don't have any more capacity not even to spend two or three minutes on a topic that's a time when you know that that you're burned out and you should look for a change uh, it's a perfect way to describe that and i would love for the term moral injury to yeah. spread farther and more broad than you know the term burnout because again yeah. it's like victim shaming you know it, it's you can't redline constantly for years and years and years and expect good results to happen and from a patient standpoint i mean that's terrifying you look at your at myself and my family, I'm like, I don't want a physician in there who's super stressed and just sitting there saying like, all right, I got to get, I got to get moving here. I only have a couple minutes to spend with you. I want that yeah. relationship that you've built with your patients and that we're building the broader market. So wanted to talk about here, you mentioned a little bit earlier that you want to kind of pay it forward, right? Help physicians overcome these hurdles and get started in this. And, and uh, by the way, I don't, I don't look at this as a competitive venture. I, I always say that, you know, at Freedom Health Works, we love people like this because there's 2,000, give or take, physicians in this country doing this. We need 200,000. So yeah. anybody who, you know, has a way to help out, come on in. Let's figure out a way to work together. Let's go. But tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing specifically there locally in the Vegas area for physicians who might be looking for a way out. Yeah. So I've been leasing all of this time and I added up how much money we've been paying into the lease over the last few years. And um, I want to buy a building and um, I want to basically make several exam rooms and kind of sublease them like a hair salon subleases chairs and allow each physician a lower income overhead, like going into DPC overhead in order to start building their practice with a lower initial cost. Mm -hmm. And basically have a building where the whole, if you have multiple doctors there, that all of them are price transparent and that all the prices are up front and somebody walking in the door would know the cost and already have paid it by the time they walk out the door. Yeah, that's huge. It's kind of building your own uh, government academy uh, is kind of the terms we use. It just for primary care, you go and uh, you look for specialties. I would love it to be for specialties as well. I think primary care is really the base of it because primary care has a wider spectrum than the specialist groups. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we can identify a lot of coronary artery disease and arrhythmias and stuff. So we send referrals to a cardiologist, but he can't fill up his whole schedule with direct pay. Not yet, at least. Right. Maybe in the future, if there were more primary care docs giving referrals, and that's one of the things with primary care, direct primary care also, is that most DPC doctors, since they're able to spend more time, they refer less. Mm -hmm. We still need specialists, but we refer less because we can actually go look it up and 
give them a medicine that we usually don't prescribe or we can uh, go curbside our specialist's friend or text them and say, should I do this or do you want me to send them to you? <laughs> oh, you're exactly right. And I kind of joke with our primary care docs that, hey, for the first time in a, in a long, long time, specialists and surgeons out there are very jealous of what you're able to do <laughs> with a recurring lower volume, higher relationship, higher touch type of a practice. And we get calls from specialists all the time and trying to work with it. And like you said, yeah. it's still just very early. We need, we need as many primary care docs as we can, knowing that the path has been paved for them. They're not the people on the Oregon Trail anymore, you know, on your covered wagons out there. It's yeah. a six-lane highway all the way out there to the promised land where you need to go. Just need to punch through those doors and and uh, yeah. have a little bit of stick stick to itness with them and you know, they can be very, very successful with it. So how's it, how's the response going from, you know, local, um, have you floated this idea past anybody out there? Yeah, but we haven't bought our building yet and we haven't started at all yet, but we started a free market medical association chapter in Nevada in September, 2021. And so I'm hoping that with time we can get more primary care docs into this kind of model and subspecialists. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're actually, uh, we started the Indiana chapter a few months ago. So great people. Oh. Definitely. They, they've been longtime sponsors of this show. So uh, we know them, we know them very, very well and love what they're doing here, trying to combine really all, all facets of the, uh, the healthcare system, trying yeah. to get people to talk to each other and share ideas. So last question for you here, Dr. Hawks, what does your ideal looking at crystal ball? I love, I love this, this part of the show, looking at the crystal ball, if you had that magic wand, you know, you're, you're king of the, you know, the healthcare czar for, for a day, you can change everything. What do you do? How do you create a perfect healthcare system in the United States? I don't think there's any system that everyone will love. <laughs> there is no perfect system. <laughs> That's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> but um, for patients, it needs to be something that's accessible, price accessible, and physicians, it needs to be something that's not so micromanaged. And so I think there needs to be some kind of a balance between the free market, but also a um, government or insurance subsidized, because really, even the, the lower monthly payments for direct primary care really are too expensive for some people. And uh, we talk about getting surgeries for less than five or $8,000, but still that's too much for a lot of people. They wouldn't even be able to put it on a credit card. And sure. so I think the free market has a lot of solutions, but it's not going to be a hundred percent solutions. We still have a lot of people. There's a couple areas that I think are hard to deal with in primary care. One of them is decompensated mental illness. So uh, mental health. So with patients who have really bad depression or bipolarity, it's hard to stay consistent with the monthly payment. And then if they have a hospitalization, hospitals and ERs, I think are a very hard wall to break, but I think that if there was enough momentum, it would enter into discussion. Oh, absolutely. And that's a great point on you know the mental health side of it. But then, yeah, everybody kind of defaults back to that. Hey, what happens if I'm a car accident and I get rushed to the nearest hospital? What do I do? And yeah. for us, it, it, it always boils down to you know healthcare being paid by the wrong currency. Yeah. And when you're using your health insurance plan to enact those transactions rather than good old dollars and cents, there's going to be just a total misalignment of incentives. So I love it. And, you know, I want to bring up again, one thing you said at the beginning is that we don't emphasize primary care enough. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of times when primary care doctors such as yourself were treated basically like a triage 
and saying, hey, doc, I, I just need to come see you so you can send me into a cardiologist. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. No, I can fix you right here for a fraction yeah. of what that's going to cost. And they look at you like, well, what yeah. are you talking about? You're just kind of the school nurse. I need to actually go talk to a real doctor. I need to go talk <laughs> to a specialist, right? And it's just like, I had somebody oh, ask for a cardiology referral and their only issue was hypertension. And I said, we can handle hypertension just fine. <laughs> you know, but I've been seeing my heart doc for this. Yeah. So you can continue seeing them if you like, but I feel comfortable managing this. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, Dr. Hawks, I appreciate you coming on and telling your story. And again, thanks for reaching out. And I hope people got a lot of out of this as, hey, you know, this is possible with a lot of those yeah. perceived barriers. And wait, let me ask you this. Do you ever see a scenario where, you know, if things unfortunately just didn't work out for your practice, do you ever see you voluntarily going back into an insurance-based practice? Um, no. Well, not as it currently exists. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a strong enough, strong enough statement right there, Doc. And sometimes I think to myself, am I just like in an adolescent stage of my career where I want to fight against the man, you know? And I don't know how healthcare will turn out in the long term. And we have to be open to talking with insurance companies and talking with employers and talking with Medicare and Medicaid about adjusting things because direct primary care works for a very large portion of most people, but there's that small fraction of people that it's not accessible. And so I don't think I would say that I would never go back, but for now, I'm not going back. <laughs> there you go. Dr. James Hawks, an internist, owner of Hawks Clinic, drug primary care practice out in wonderful Las Vegas. Dr. Hawks, thanks again for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thank you very much. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. And for any more bonus content episodes, visit us on healthcareamericana.com. Join our newsletter. Check us out on all the social media platforms out there. Once again, thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.